This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Labour look closer to power than they have been for well over a decade. But as they near the next election, some big tensions are starting to become clear. One is about the party's plans for a green economy. I think there's just a lack of intellectual rigour and thinking about where they've got to on oil and gas. Another source of conflict is Keir Starmer's apparent drive to sideline the Labour left. That started with Jeremy Corbyn and it now includes a big political figure in the northeast of England. All I really want is to let the people of the northeast choose who is their mayor and not let London Labour choose. Who is their mayor? What does all this tell us about how Keir Starmer is actually going to run the country? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian columnists, Raphael Baer and Gabby Hinsliff. Hello. Hello. Hello, John. Let's start by talking about Holly Willoughby's instantly infamous uh, address to the nation on this morning, now known as the Are You OK speech. <laughs> uh, where she sort of gravely seemed to me to adopt the tone you'd expect from someone talking to the country in about, you know, 1940-odd after the bombing of Coventry. (laughs) But actually, what she was uh, referring to was the departure of Philip Schofield, among other things. Have you seen it, either of you, and what did you think, I wonder? I've seen the clips. I have to say uh, I wasn't wasn't watching live. Yeah, it was a bit Death of the Monarch. You know, you did half expect a, a black tie to come into it. I think I think probably we've all reached the stage now where we could happily move on from the the Philip Schofield affair. But there was it's not it's not that there was nothing to it. You know, I, I wrote about it for the paper because it, it does raise a broader issue about how employers deal with the sort of grey area that's that's come out post Me Too stuff that isn't against the law, isn't a sacking offence, but still sort of makes everyone uncomfortable. Relationships with a sort of power imbalance and all the rest of it. But you know. Whatever it is, two weeks later, I think perhaps we could put this one to bed now. Maybe. But it does say something about the sort of vanity and self-seriousness of TV presenters, doesn't it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was very peculiar. I was doing a, a radio broadcast expecting to talk about politics a few days ago, and this came up. And, and the whole conversation was attempt to sort of aggrandise it into a question about the future of the media or Britain's soft power or something. I don't even know what. And it was basically just sort of glorified gossip. And it speaks, I suppose, to, if I was trying to sort of psychoanalyze it, 
a kind of craving for anything that we might all have in common. Yes, that, that's about. very Some good. Kind of yeah, that's very well vast water cooler needs that we have to all be talking about the same thing when actually we're living in pretty bleak times. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's move on from Holly Willoughby. If I don't think Holly Willoughby can do that. But anyway, today we will be talking about the Labour Party. Its landmark green investment plan has been facing criticism from the Tories and hostile noises from inside the Labour Party, while big figures in the trade unions are opposing Labour's plans to ban new oil and gas developments. What is behind the backlash? And um, it's becoming more and more obvious that Keir Starmer and his inner circle are set on remaking the party in their image and sidelining Labour's left. What, uh, we're going to wonder, does that tell us about what Labour would be like in government? Right, let's talk about the Labour Party's green investment plans. When Keir Starmer stood up at his party conference last year in Liverpool and announced a new flagship policy centred on the slogan, A Fairer, Greener Future, it all received a huge amount of attention. Let's hear a bit of what he said. Because some nation is going to lead the world in offshore wind. Why not this one? Some nation. Some nation will win the race for electric vehicles. Why not us? Some nation will be the first to harness new hydrogen power. Why not Britain? It's less than a year since he made that speech. And um, parts of that policy feel like they're sort of under threat somewhat. Um, and we're going to talk about why. First of all, let's just go through what Labour's green growth plan actually is. Stop new um, oil and gas developments, not least in the North Sea. To spend £28 billion a year, each and every year, over a decade, supporting British workers and businesses towards a fair and prosperous transition to net zero. And the creation of a new entity called Great British Energy which will be a publicly owned clean energy company that will harness Britain's sun, wind and wave energy to deliver 100% clean electricity by 2030 and make the UK energy independent. Um, now, when it comes to the pledge to stop new gas and oil developments, um, some of the big unions are kicking off. This is Gary Smith, the leader of the GMB union, speaking to Sky's Sophie Ridge about his concerns. On oil and gas, quite simply, I think Labour have been naive. They've got it wrong. You know, um, we are critical friends of the Labour Party and uh, I think there's just a lack of intellectual rigour and thinking about where they've got to on oil and gas. They're focusing on what they think is popular rather than doing the proper thinking to understand what is right for the country. There we are then. Let's talk about these problems around the unions. They will obviously say they are protecting the jobs and um, interests of their workers you rather wonder where they are on the bigger picture of the climate crisis. Why now do you think, Gabby, that all this is coming to a head? I think partly because Labour's been rolling out the policy. So, you know, this is not a huge surprise. There was a direction of the indication of travel last autumn. But, you know, we're starting to see the big announcements crystallising now. And we're in that that period of run up to finalising the manifesto when you do get, you know, last minute sort of tensions coming to the surface. If Labour can't deal with that question from the unions, which is, how are you going to you know, help people through this transition who might otherwise suffer or lose their jobs? You know, that question is going to come up from the voters if it doesn't come up from the unions. So Labour needs to have an answer from it for it, wherever it, it comes from. And you've seen Keir Starmer trying to advance an answer to that this week, you know, saying it's not going to be like when we, you know, it's not going to be like Thatcher in the coalfields communities. We're not just going to pull out and leave places to wither and die. We're not going to expect people to move to where the jobs have moved to, that, you know, the new jobs will be in the areas that are losing out um, due to fossil fuels. Remains to be seen if we can deliver on that in detail, to be honest. 
The Labour Party RAF likes to think of itself as being green, but this is always an issue, right? I mean, I think back to, what, sort of 2009, 2010, the fag end of the last Labour government. There were sort of comparable tensions about uh, the expansion of Heathrow Airport, and they sort of lingered on through the Jeremy Corbyn period. It's quite familiar stuff, this, in that regard. Yeah, I mean, there is a, a, an essential tension here between representing people who are currently working in industries and the bigger progressive goal of a transition to a greener economy that means you know in the future people won't be in carbon in the carbon intensive industries that's the theory so you something's got to happen to those jobs and in this particular iteration a green policy is the tension there but that is uh, you know you, there are all sorts of other ways in which the interests of organized labor have a small c conservative reactionary component because they like to keep the conditions they've got they're entitled yeah, to, yeah, want yeah. to keep those conditions and they don't want change they don't want reform i mean so that yeah that's when tony blair you know talked about sort of the scars on my back and the forces of conservatism that's pretty much what he meant he meant that sometimes organized labor is small c conservative yeah completely but this is a different thing in the sense that um you expected blair to be a sort of broadly skeptical or hostile towards large sections of the trade unions because he was the ultimate Blairite, right? Whereas in this case, you've got quite a left-wing policy agenda in the in the sense of being very thoroughgoing about the climate crisis. And that's very difficult for people on the, the left of Labour politics to stomach, right? It feels weird for those people, I think. It does feel uncomfortable. But as, as Raf said, you know, I think there's an assumption that, you know, on the left sometimes that because the unions have traditionally been to the left of the leadership, that if you're on the left of the party, the unions will always be in your corner. You know, and it, it feels uncomfortable being in a position where they're where they're not. You know, but that is something that we've seen before that the left is going to have to get used to. And that, in fairness, you know, if you're talking about a just transition, because nobody on the left talks about you know anything other than a socially just transition. Well, this is what a socially just transition means. It means that you don't you know leave behind people who are often on lower wages. You don't leave behind parts of the country. You don't just go oh it's Aberdeen. We don't really care. You know so that's what a socially just transition means. That people are going to raise awkward questions and that you're going to have to spend some money to be honest to accommodate you know those that transition. Let's talk about hostility to Labour's plans, uh, not surprisingly, on the right of politics. Um, I mean, the Conservative Party and the wider sort of Conservative family, I suppose, as regards the media and so on. There have been warnings Jeremy Hunt, I think, is going to go on the attack against these plans uh, in the next days and weeks. Monday's Daily Mail front page said families face a £1,000 a year bill for Labour eco plans. There is a lot of noise now around this policy and a lot of hostility to it. And I wonder how much Keir Starmer is going to hold the line because there are hostile noises towards it within the Labour Party as well, far beyond these attacks on the trade unions. The idea that it's all too sort of uh, big spending and threatens Labour's fiscal credibility and all that, right? So the, the policy feels somewhat fragile to me. I think there's nervousness about it on several fronts. And one of those is, you know, one of those, as you say, is the scale of the borrowing and does that, you know, does that put them... It's sort of in breach of treasury rules. The but the bigger one probably is is this if this gets presented to the public, if Tories succeed in presenting it to the public as they want to present it to the public, which will be, oh, this will push your gas bills up just when you were just when they were maybe about to come down. This will hit you in the pocket, just you know, in the middle of a cost of living crisis. You can't afford this. You know, it's all it's all some hippie nonsense that's you know that would be nice in a dream world, but you can't have it now. You know, that's the really dangerous attack much more so i think than the sort of other political attack they're running which is you know labor's in the pocket of people who used to work for extinction rebellion everyone's frightened of 
of higher bills. But Labour's got to make that argument. It's got to make the argument that bills would be even higher now if it wasn't for renewables coming on stream years ago. And bills would be cheaper in the future. It's about long-term cheaper energy as well as saving the planet and seeing off Putin and all the rest of it. So you've got to you know, be able to make that longer-term point, I think. This policy feels too central to Labour's kind of mission to give up on easily. I mean, I think it's significant that Rachel Reeves launched it in Washington. They were making a big play. We're kind of on the same track as Biden here. You know, it's part of Britain reaching out to the rest of the world, showing it takes its global obligations seriously, all the rest of it. Don't think they can just bin it overnight. No, but they sound they sound hesitant about it, Raf. I was only reading this morning, I think, in the Financial Times saying that, oh, perhaps the $28 billion a year might be scaled back and it'll take a few years to kick in and so on. You know, there's still something not quite entirely solid about this, right, If, you, if in terms of across-the-board enthusiasm at the top of the Labour Party. Rachel Reeves' argument in particular is that Labour has understood the changing geostrategic dimension of where Britain is in the world and is on board with what Joe Biden is trying to do and the Tories are not. And there aren't that many economic dividing lines and that's an important one. And also, yeah, as you say, 28 billion, that's a lot of money every year. If you think that the sort of the Biden IRA plan, although there's other elements to it, that the number there is more. That's called the Inflation Reduction Act, just to make that yeah, clear. Not it's not a reference to Irish Republican terrorists. I know. I still find that irritating and confusing. I wish I'd come up with a different acronym. But anyway, the headline figure there is in the order of 37 billion, and America's a lot bigger than Britain. So yeah, yeah. then, so there's two elements to this. One is. Did they come up with that number when interest rates were 0.5% and now they're 4.5% and therefore it's just it is a, a sort of a fiscal fact that you maybe need to recalibrate what you're saying to the markets about how much Labour would borrow. And that's a nervousness that you're picking up around people who support the policy as well. The key thing is that's actually much more about vibes than about numbers. And I think for Labour can probably, and it, a lot will depend on how big the majority is if they win and all sorts of other things. But essentially, uh, I think Labour have to hold their nerve and say, no, we are running a sensible policy for a new era. And actually most non-aligned economists can see the rationale behind what Labour is saying. On this. Okay, but whether it is about, as you put it, vibes or numbers, it's quite striking to me to look at the amount of briefing over the last, what, sort of five or six months intermittently there has been against Ed Miliband, whose shadow cabinet brief is is this, right, and also who is said to be the chief architect of the policy, right? He's the person who's really been pushing it. Now, you go back to January this year, Peter Mandelson, who we know is quite sort of influential in Starmer circles, has said few voters will be thrilled by Keir Starmer turning into another Greta Thunberg. And then there were a couple of stories in the papers over the weekend. Um, the Daily Mail wrote about loser Ed Miliband being blamed by angry Labour backbenchers for forcing mad green policies on Sir Keir Starmer. Sunday Times had a headline, How Ed Miliband Powered Labour's Green Agenda, but Starmer may pull the plug. Something is going on here, very definitely, isn't it? I think there's two things going on. I think some of it is actually just personal. I think, you know, Ed is a former leader of the party. He's one of the few people in shadow cabinet who's actually been a cabinet minister, worked high level in the Treasury. He's got very strong views. He's very bright. He's a big player. And I think some colleagues sometimes find that threatening or overwhelming you know there was a bit of briefing when Starmer wasn't doing so well in the polls there was a bit of you know Keir hasn't got any ideas and really Ed's providing him with all his ideas which I doubt has um, you know helped relationships so some of it is personal but there is definitely a nervousness too about how this is going to play with older sort of Labour traditional voters but you just think I mean there's a there is risk yeah there is a political risk there but there's also a big risk in other seats where you know labor risks losing particularly younger voters particularly in the cities some of the southeast seats where lots of people have moved out from london you know 
there's a lot of people who would probably like to vote green if they thought it was, you know, they thought it was in with a chance. And there is a worry about losing some Labour support to the Greens in lots of other seats. That's what, you know, there's risks either way, politically, doing it or not doing it. But more important than that, there's a sort of existential risk to kind of life as we know it if you don't do it. I mean, the Ed Miliband thing, I think Abby's right. There's a, something different has happened there, which is that there was this early stage of Keir Starmer's leadership where he's, he's building the plane while flying it, except he shouldn't be flying planes anyway for green reasons. But anyway, you know what I mean. And he's, uh, he's, he's, he's been on a very steep learning curve about how politics worked. And he did definitely uh, sort of rely on and use Ed Miliband early on in that period. And I think Yes, Ed Miliband was his, speaking, was his co-pilot for a while, yes, yeah. while, while they were building the aeroplane. Yeah, bluntly speaking... My sense is that he outgrew Ed Miliband and also started to share the frustration that a lot of people have with Ed Miliband, people who worked with him when he served under him in his shadow cabinet, worked with him before. That is, for someone who failed and lost, was not successful at leading the Labour Party by most metrics, he doesn't seem to have very much humility about actually what went wrong and, on the contrary, seems to have a fair amount of overconfidence about what should work and what can be right. And that gets people's backs up. But also there is a factional sort of ideological motive for this mistrust and hostility towards Ed Miliband, it seems to me, which is that there are people on the right of the Labour Party, some of whom are quite influential in Keir Starmer's circle, who don't like Ed Miliband at all, notwithstanding what you just said, also for the reason, as they see it, that he opened the way to Jeremy Corbyn and he sort of dangerously left-wing and an anti-capitalist and all that, right? And so they're grinding an ideological axe as well, which is what we'll talk about in part two. Some of this dovetails a bit, it seems to me, with this war on the Labour left. It's hard to deny that. To me, you're both saying the same thing from different different <laughs> points of view. You know, I think I think you're right. There's a the clear ideological tension there. What Raf's saying, you know, is also right, which is the, that part of that ideological tension is just, you know, well, we disagree about this and we always will till the end of time. But part of it is, you know, a feeling that, okay, Ed, you tried it your way and we know what happened in 2015. So, you know, let us try it our way and, you know, see if it works better. Because I think the lesson in some ways that Ed drew from that election was that he should have been bolder. You know, he shouldn't have had come back. He shouldn't have at the last minute kind of lost their nerve a bit like Labour did in 2015. No, sure. Actually, I mean, he, he, wrote, he wrote a book called Go Big for that reason. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. And I think, you know, that is, there's, there is very much a sort of, go small instinct in, in parts of the circle surrounding Starmer. And th this is so messed up because Starmer outwardly is enthusiastic about going big to the tune of £28 billion a year, notwithstanding the fact that he's trying to build the aeroplane while he's flying it and all that, right? So it's kind of hard to know where all this falls, right? I think you've hit the nail on the head there. The issue is, and this is the one complaint that almost everyone, if, they can, if you can tease a complaint about Keir Starmer, out of them will have about him, uh, is that... You know, he just needs to choose and say, and you know, we're going to come on to talk about the sort of ah. Um, so he's sort of flying control. two ah. Now hold on a minute, he's flying two planes at once, or while trying to build them, or he's got the plane on, or he's flying plane and he's not going back to the cabin to tell the crew what's going on. <laughs> I can't make this metaphor work. And is Ed Miliband, Ed Miliband <laughs> is still in the I plane somewhere? somewhere. Out. I can't do this in plane terms, but what I can say is sometimes, you know. Do you want to go big when you're flying, like, you know, straight into a mountain? Probably not. Do you want to, you know, do you but want... But what mountain want are they to, flying into? Get... Hold on a minute. Stop, stop, stop. The mountain that Keir has to climb to get elected, obviously. Uh, but no, it's that kind of thing of... you. Something... <laughs> so he's going to get out of the plane. He's got to jump out of the okay. plane to climb the Let's mountain. Let's ditch the plane. But sometimes sometimes you want to go bold on things and sometimes you want to be cautious on things. You don't have to be always bold about everything or always cautious about everything. And I don't, you know, as long as you pick the issues on which you really 
do want to, you know, do something big. And then there may be other issues where you're more, you know, kind of want to move more gradually and move more slowly and take people with you. That doesn't seem to me mad. No, the the point I was trying to make, though, was more that with Starmer, the issue is people don't know what his instincts are. It's not that they don't know what the policy is and he doesn't have control. He does. And there are policies. But it's which way, where his heart beats, where roughly between left and right, you know, that's that's the stuff that I think is frustrating people. And that's what creates the space for some of this stuff. to. to Yeah, we still don't know. I'm going to go back to the plane analogy. We still don't know quite where the plane is, do we, in terms of its direction of travel? That's true. Well, it's heading towards, towards an election. Right. On that note, uh, we have now arrived at the end of part one. The local time is 10 past <laughs> one. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed flying with us. Let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we're going to be looking at Labour's other big problem this week, um, the leadership's relationship with the Labour left and allegations of a big purge. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back. There will be no more aeroplane metaphors, I promise you. This week, another story made headlines for Labour, this time about the National Executive Committee, the NEC, the party's ruling body, and its decision to block Jamie Driscoll, the elected mayor of the North of Tyne Combined Authority, this is a bit complicated, from running to lead the newly expanded northeast mayoral area. Driscoll is sometimes called the last Corbynista in power, and the decision to block him from standing has been linked to him sharing a panel at an arts event with the film director Ken Loach, another Corbyn ally who had been expelled from the party over his apparent support for those, or some of those, who'd been kicked out of the party over anti-Semitism. This is what Jamie Driscoll said on Radio 4 about his blocking. Incidentally, I mean, in 2019, when we went through this process, the selection last time, the party stopped the process and restarted it again a month later because they weren't happy that any women had applied. Fair enough, that's their call. So there's a precedent that you can stop these processes and start them again. Uh, And all I really want is to let the people of the North East choose who is their mayor and not let London Labour choose who is their mayor. Now, this story um, is sort of developing. The decision to block Driscoll from standing has prompted two other high-profile mayors, Steve Rotherham and Andy Burnham, to criticise the decision in a public letter. And there's an even bigger story here. Across the country, left-wingers have been cut from long lists for selection as parliamentary candidates. The most visible example is Jeremy Corbyn. You remember him? He used to be the leader of the Labour Party. But there are plenty of others. There's a lot of this stuff around. I wonder how you feel about it. Unsurprised, I think, is probably the, um, the the tedious answer. I mean, in a way, it demonstrates what we already 
knew firstly that the leadership really means it about anti-Semitism and that they will stick to that line over and over and over again. But also, you know, this is what happens when the Labour Party gets closer to power. It's also, to be honest, what happens whenever any aspect, any particular faction of the Labour Party has power. There are plenty of Blairites who were blocked from standing under Jeremy Corbyn. You know, you want to get your own people in. But this is, a, yes, but this is at a different level, right? In terms of the extent of it and how it seems to be following a, a sort of clear, very determined That seems plan. to me exactly... There's no parallel oh, for on. this, really, as far as Corbynism or New Labour. Do you right? not this is remember the attempt to shut Ken Livingston out of running for mayor when they ran Frank of Dobson course, and Ken ran as an independent? You know, that was a much bigger, in some ways, drama than, you know, no shade on Jamie Driscoll, but, you know, he is not a household name, perhaps, in the same way that Ken Livingston was. Well, you can argue about whether it's right or wrong. You can argue about whether the right or wrong people are being excluded, but the act of trying to exclude people who you don't feel are part of your project, you know, that is as old as political parties. And the Tories do it too. The thing that surprised me is how effective it is. I mean, how, 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 how much they're getting away with it. I mean, really, as you say, you can argue whether or not it's a good or a bad thing to completely purge the left. I mean, I, I'm, it won't surprise anyone listening to this podcast that I was no fan of Jeremy Corbyn and I don't think his leadership was good for the Labour Party. I do think there is room for socialists in the Labour Party, obviously, and a, a Labour left is, is, a, is a legitimate faction within that. There's a separate question about where the boundary is, where you know, anti-Semitism is a different issue. And I'm very glad that Jeremy Corbyn's not going to be a Labour candidate. But that said, the, the remarkable thing is that they are doing it. They're much better than David Cameron did, for example, with his A-list. You remember, like, that was carnage. But we can talk about the effectiveness of it. I want quite a lively discussion about whether you feel it's right or wrong, because it makes me very, very uneasy. I think it's wrong, right? I think it's starting to look ugly. I think a lot of it is starting to look very petty. And also, I think it goes against the grain of how the world works. You cannot be this controlling and micromanaging, right, in the age of social media and pluralist politics and the fact that people have all sorts of loyalties and, and ideas about all sorts of things and you can't you can't sit there in the middle in london saying you not you can't stand in stand in the northeast of england where but does you it can end? though that's the whole point of the way the party structured you can whether you should i think becomes a question of where you draw the line you know what is it that and where do you draw it. the line, draw the line what do you think should candidates happen? who are anti-semitic or have associations with anti-semitism you know that seems a fair point to draw the line i draw the line that candidates who have other shall we say due diligence issues candles who have some sort of scandal attached to them and then beyond that it's a question of who is the best fit for this particular constituency a good candidate should be able to stand, especially in seats where that candidate is going to be the right fit for, you know, for the for the locality. If they haven't done anything terribly wrong, except for disagree with the leadership, I think there has to be space for those people. And I think in the same way that I think there should have been space for Blairites under Jeremy Corbyn and there should be space for, you know, whoever in whatever party, as long as you can confidently stand on the platform that, you know, there is going to be at the next election, which might be tough for um some socialist candidates. I don't see why those people shouldn't stand. In the Jamie Driscoll case, it's not being argued, and um, you, you know, people might say that it's not the real answer or whatever, but it's not being argued in the Jamie Driscoll case, oh, he's too left wing. It's being argued that he didn't have a satisfactory answer in the candidate interviews to the question of why did you go to an event featuring Ken Loach and then why did you, uh, when you were asked to apologise for it afterwards, why did you not apologise? In that sense, you know, I mean, the anti-Semitism thing is, is always going to be toxic and problematic for Labour because it overlaps with a wider question of where has sort of radical left politics generally blended into something that Keir Starmer's Labour Party finds unacceptable. And that's much harder to define. What Keir Starmer's never really done, what he's never articulated, separate to the issue of anti-Semitism, is what actually is the boundary of 
radical Marxist revolutionary left politics that puts you on the wrong side of a fence, which is the left boundary of legitimate Labour politics. He's never answered that. And I'm just very interested to know, actually, what is it these candidates believe or these various prospective candidates believe outside the things that Gabby mentioned, scandals, racism, the rest of it, that would make them beyond the pale for for Keir Starmer? I, I don't know the answer to that. I worry personally, although I don't necessarily share the politics of someone like Jamie Driscoll, that you're seeing something that's never really happened before. It's not like Tony Blair said there is no place for John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party. He didn't, right? Um, the, 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 probably because he felt the Labour left wasn't a threat. They stayed much where they were, right? Something has changed here. And you mentioned the Ken Livingston thing a moment ago. This is in 2000 when Ken Livingston was stopped being the Labour candidate for mayor. He then stood as an independent and won, right? And it seems to me that just on the basis of whether or not these things work, there is always a massive risk that they backfire. You know, micromanagers, neurotic micromanagers in politics usually in some way get their come That up. is true. But implicit in your argument is that, you know, Jamie Driscoll is being treated the way he's being treated, not because of anti-Semitism or anything to do with anti-Semitism, but because of his left views. And, you know, that 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 is essentially what well, that's, you're saying. Uh, that seems to me to be certainly the case. All right, let's and it's difficult because, you know, we don't know in that case, <laughs> let's just say, at the very least, uh, his associations with Ken Loach are a complicating factor. So, you know, you can't, it's not directly comparable. I think it's true that, it, you know, being overly control freaky and shutting out people who are immensely popular, you know, tends to backfire. And it did backfire on Blair in that instance. It did backfire on David Cameron at times. You know, there, there are plenty of instances of that. There are also plenty of instances where both leaders stopped total cranks from becoming MPs. And we never heard about the flip side of what would have happened if they had, you know. I think in, in, in terms of what happened, what happened was... Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party and a lot of people on the right, the Blairites or however you want to describe it, of the Labour Party uh, felt it was a, a, a existential moment where you know, the party itself could have been lost completely, certainly lost to them. Uh, they've got it back and they're going to make sure exactly you know, that they don't do the, the complaint about or at least the analysis of what happened in the Blair era was exactly that the, it was that they made a Jurassic Park mistake. They basically thought you could allow these dinosaurs, as they would see it, in their own reservation with big high electric fences and let them cavort around in their socialist campaign group. And they were effectively on the wrong side of history. And that was okay, And you could do that and manage it. And then the dinosaurs got out of the Jurassic Park and started gobbling everyone up. And they, uh, for want of a better term, shat themselves. And now they're going to make sure there is no Jurassic Park. This is worse than the plane analogy. (laughs) They're going to get in their helicopters with their big... It's metaphor day today, isn't it? They're going to get in their helicopters with their big bazooka and they're going to take them out. And that, rightly or wrongly, that's, that, I, I feel that is a big motive. I am pro-dinosaur in this analogy. You know, I just think, you know, you cannot have an entirely bland, homogenous party comprised of people who all agree with the leader about everything. It's boring as hell. It provides Good. no I'm check. Probably, uh, it provides yeah, no check conclusion. as well. Unless you are like God and never get anything wrong, you need a part of your party that disagrees with you every now and then. Apart from Antisemisaurus... No, Antisemisaurus is out. Put him down. But other than that... There is another point here, right, which is that Keir Starmer and his circle are now absolutely militantly, vehemently against this part of the Labour Party. They want to drive it out. Keir Starmer, as we all know, stood for the Labour leadership on the basis that he thought they were good. They were the bee's knees. And they had a lot of great ideas. And although they were incompetent, he would take those ideas forward, right? You cannot deny that there is a massive dishonesty at the heart of all this. I saw a quote just earlier 
earlier, you know, Keir Starmer in 2020 asked about Jeremy Corbyn. He said he is a friend and a colleague. And you think, well, not anymore, he's not, is he? But that wasn't that long ago. And that is, I agree, that presentationally, uh, as much as in terms of, you know, and, and allowing uh, the Conservatives to say, you, do, you believe in nothing except trying to win. Uh, and there is a slipperiness about this. And that bleeds into wider concerns about Keir Starmer. That I think is a problem. I agree. If you look at where he, with the sort of the manifesto he stood on, I mean, he's moved on, God knows how many things he's moved on, tuition fees, he's moved on the EU, he's moved on migration, he's moved on some, but not all of the privatisations. You know, it is a very, very different prospectus than the one that a lot of Labour members voted for. And there will be some Labour members who voted for him thinking, you are the most Blairite of the lot that I can see, who will be like, hurrah, you know, he's moved further towards us. And there will be some looking at it thinking, whoa, this is not, not what I voted for. And had I known, I would have gone elsewhere. I think there's something on the face of it indefensibly cynical about running on the platform that he did and then just just binning it all at the earliest possible opportunity and styling himself as the complete opposite. I don't think it was cynical. Right? I think it was naive. I think mm-hmm. he believed that that was that stuff about we're not going to oversteer uh, and actually there's a lot of good stuff here and the, the, the problem with the manifesto was basically too much of it, all that stuff. And he has learned, and some will say he's drawn the wrong lessons from this, but I think that the experience of you know, the first two or three years of being Labour leader... and That's a bit generous. No, I, Isn't that but, a bit I, I, generous? Is, you know, from what I understand from people who have been in the office, out of the office, supported him, not supported him, there does seem to be a general consensus that the, this is a steep learning curve he's been on and he's been persuaded, rightly or wrongly, that in order to win, which is the thing he cares about most... He needed to really shift his position on that stuff, and that and he, and nothing is sacred in that mission, and he's chucked it all overboard. Yeah, as part of that process. And just to make this clear, the the other thing is that the unease about this is not just about the treatment of so-called Corbynites and and what you might think of as the traditional Labour left, right? So there's a lot of briefing against Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, right, who again is seen as being uh, dangerously radical. They don't like what he says about cooperating with other parties, for example, right? And there's a lot of nasty stuff circulating about him. So it runs a bit more wide. It runs a bit more widely, doesn't it, than um, than the Corbyn? It was interesting when, when Andy... Burnham, I think, came in, um, weighed in on the Jamie Driscoll row because you very much got the feeling that that was not necessarily about, you know, his politics are a bit different from Jamie Driscoll's, I would say, but that was much more about defend, you know, thinking that mayors, regional mayors need sometimes to be able to define themselves against the central party. You know, they need exactly to be able to right. say, I'm standing up for my region against those. And Andy, some may say that Andy Burnham does it to, this to excess, but you know, the whole, I'm not from Westminster, I'm not like them, I'm not part of the bubble, I'm rooted in my city. You know, that is part of what a mayor has to do and they have to have the freedom to do that. The centre has to let them have the freedom to do that. And, you know, you you could very much see that that sort of, that sense that, you know, we need to be able sometimes to kick back at you coming up. And I don't think Starmer is all that comfortable with, you know, again, there's personal animosity, I think, between Burnham's office and Starmer's, a sense that Burnham wants to have it all his own way. He wants to constantly be kind of, you know, defining himself against London, against Westminster, against, you know, the establishment. And then he doesn't want them kicking back at him, you know, and maybe it's a bit of a two-way street. But you can see those tensions very clearly. Then. I think I think that's a very good analysis, uh, and also that it it testifies to basically an insecurity around, if not in Starmer's head, in the, in the people around him who sort of know that his candidacy isn't quite big enough and strong enough, and therefore they lash out in that way. I would say of the Andy Burnham thing that's very interesting though. His the, the defence of Jamie Driscoll, you know, about the party democracy and the systems. 
was, was, was kept very carefully worded because there's another person who very much likes to signal when it suits him that actually he's he, he could be a little bit to the left of whoever is running the Labour Party at a given moment. But these people, they never say where the left boundary is for them. They never define their own politics. They just sort of, it's what Gordon Brown did to Tony Blair for the best part of 10 years. It's what everyone, it's what Ed Miliband did to David Miliband. It's what everyone always does in the Labour Party, which is to show a little bit of leg to the left and go, I'm a little bit more on your side than them without really actually deciding where you think the boundaries are. The other point on this is that I wonder whether the whether Labour's Green Investment Pledge and its big green platform might end up being one of the totems in this ideological war in the sense that the most sort of fervent advocates and defenders of that policy tend to be on the left, right? And a lot of the hostile noises about it are coming from the Labour right. And in that sense, I can't help but sort of blur the, the two issues together. It does feel like that. I don't think Rachel Reeves would willingly chop down the totem pole of 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 the sort of anglo bidenomic axis that she is building. That's a very, very important part of... Now, if you speak to anyone, including yeah, the, the people who you, you might think of as on the right of the party and Starmer's team, about you know, what is the actual proposition, the key proposition, the, the line of distinction between Labour and the Tories, because a lot of people, a lot of the criticism is it's hard to know anymore. They're in the same position on Brexit. They both talk about fiscal rectitude, all that. But what's the what actually is the difference? They will say it is growth and a strategy for growth and having the ambition to actually deliver it. And this is what that does. Now, whether it becomes branded as more windmills or more industrial good quality jobs, you know, or however the hell you want to you want to frame it. I, I think you know, Rachel Reeves is not going to basically uh, hand over her flagship policy for sacrifice anytime soon. Do you expect, therefore, Gabby, that the Green Investment Pledge and everything that goes with it to survive into the manifesto in the election? Yes, I do. I'm not worried that it's vulnerable now. I'm worried that it's vulnerable once they're actually in government. And once there starts being a backwash against some of these things, because it's not, you know, it's not just oil and gas extraction. If you look at the sort of broader environment, sort of policy threats as a whole, you know, there are implications there for the car industry that's going to have knock on effects, perhaps in constituencies where there are now Labour MPs and, you know, car manufacturers are big employers. There are knock on impacts once you start, you know, getting people to get rid of their gas boilers and all the rest of it. My worry is that they retreat in government, not, not, not now. Okay. Thank you for flying with us today. Please be careful opening the overhead lockers because some of your baggage might have become displaced in the course of this flight. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and it's, it's bizarre though appealing metaphors. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics with the UK wherever you get your podcasts and even better, leave us a review, preferably a nice one. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Kakutier. The pilot is Maz Ebtahaj and the co-pilot is Nicole Jackson. See you at the airport next week. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. 
Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 